Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. My guest today is Clay Gulick. He has been the CTO of four healthcare companies and is currently the CTO of Telus Health Solutions, a company specializing in remote patient monitoring. Clay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on if the listeners are at all confused about why we're talking about this particular topic. I have some background in the area. I worked for a company called Health Chain RX, which was working on the issue of putting prescription records on the blockchain. So I do have some familiarity with this uh, this area, uh, but certainly not as much as you do. But let's actually start off right there with this area. Why should people care about this aspect of healthcare technology? Well, just just to sort of set the field, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of blockchain technology and healthcare in general. And, and I think people should care because we're, you see a lot of startups that are raising money sort of based on the premise of blockchain. And there's a lot of effort going into it, somewhat less now, but but a few years ago, a ton of effort going into it. And honestly, I think it's a realm where we could spend time and money more effectively in healthcare. Um, I think there's better solutions for it uh, that, that achieve the same purpose. Um, so, so I do, I do think it's, it's relevant, especially especially when people hear these words and they have misunderstandings of what blockchain does. And, and everyone's heard of it now these days, you know, you're talking about NFTs or, you know, Bitcoin or anything like that. And so it's like, well, it works for money. Why wouldn't it work for healthcare? That seems like a great idea, right? Um, but I don't think it is. So for, for the listeners, I've used this analogy before. If you have no interest in the technical aspects of blockchain, it's best just to think of it as a, a spreadsheet that you can add lines to, but you can't take any rows away. So it's a database you can continually add to, and that data gets validated and verified. And then there's nothing that, once it's been added, can be removed, even if you're, you know, if you're undoing a transaction, that's another transaction. So the, the promise of it is that you have one universal kind of view on the truth of any particular system and what state it's in, and then you can do a lot around the permissions to who can access particular pieces of that information and who can do what with it. I I think that's a great description with, I would just probably add one pretty important uh, aspect to it, which is is the concept of what, what they call in the industry proof of work. And so proof of work is, it's a type of algorithm. It's a type of, uh, it's a type of way that um, security is implemented on the blockchain. 
And I, I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm not trying not to get people's eyes to roll back in their head because I get super nerdy on this subject, but um, suffice to say, I think, I think I read something recently that the amount of power we're spending on Bitcoin right now is exceeding the total power in like that Finland, Finland uses or something. It's like, it's ridiculous. Right. And so basically with, with blockchain technologies and, and they are trying to address this problem and come up with different ways of doing things. But currently the way it works is you just have to make a computer do a whole lot of work. That's really meaningless. It doesn't do anything valuable only to prove that the blockchain is valid. And so that is of course, a huge problem with the technology. It is, though I should note that the project that I worked on used a, a technology called Hyperledger, which is a uh, a blockchain technology developed with uh, IBM, hand in hand, kind of from the engineers at IBM. We it was actually, I think, one of the problems with uh, the the project um, was that it wasn't a really good fit ultimately for what we wanted to do. But it did at least have the advantage that instead of doing kind of meaningless proof of work, it was more like a controlled blockchain where you had a set of participants who you decided what they could and couldn't do to it and then you in theory would just kind of unleash it and let it let it run its course but it did not require um uh, proof of, of work and there are others that don't but sort of just at a at a broader level you have this problem right this problem is that you have healthcare records that are out there that would be a broader problem than the one that we were working on which was specifically prescription records but either way you have these patient records that are out there in the ether uh, so to speak and then what you know what do you do with them how do you manage them that is a kind of a central problem that's faced in the industry correct it is absolutely. And I think it's important to discuss because look, there's, there's a lot of very smart people that believe in blockchain. Um, and it's one of these things that it's, it's, you know, in technology, we always say, you know, the, the right technology for the job. And it's one of these things that is very effective and very interesting in a lot of problem domains. And it's reasonable to think that it would also be effective in healthcare. And it's reasonable to think that at a very high level, because the promise is pretty attractive. It's, it's, it's like this, this concept of, hey, I can look at a patient's history. I can look at everything they've ever done. I can exchange these records in a verifiable way. I can say, uh, maybe there was a community health organization that did something. Maybe there was a doctor that did a prescription. Maybe we have some some uh, observations, uh, some some vital signs, and stuff like that, and I can go all the way to the history of this of this patient, and I can see all the way through their healthcare, and know that it hasn't been modified. Uh, that gets really important when you're talking about things like prescription drugs that are controlled, maybe. Um, you, so there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know I, I understand the attraction, but the problem is when you run into the details of it, and and that's that's I think. That's, I think, what a lot of companies, um, and, and you can tell me if, if maybe this happened with your company as well. Um, the problem really is when you get into execution and just sort of how the healthcare industry works. And I could, I can, I can jump sort of, sort of right in. I'm, I'm trying to think of, of some of the more like maybe we can talk about just before I jump into 
all the problems I see with it and just start tearing it apart. Maybe we can talk about some, like maybe your perspective on some of the benefits of it. Uh, and- sure. Yeah. I'd, I'd be happy to, because I did think that what they were trying to achieve was, was good. Um, and there were a lot of great ideas in, in particular, um, the, the CEO, um, Adam, um, he was really smart and had a lot of interesting insights in how to, Adam Cole, um, how to specifically protect privacy and allow people still to have kind of ownership of their own records. So there was some really actually innovative IP in terms of that. And that is, I think, ultimately the promise is that you are having patients who have a complete access and control over their healthcare records, if you think about it more broadly, beyond even just the initial scope of the, you know, of the uh, prescription records. But I, as a patient, decide who gets to access these records, who doesn't. I can, of course, access them anytime and see the full view of it. As you mentioned, you get some sort of view or promise that this hasn't been a compromised record in in any way. Um, and then on the flip side, the doctors who I have are, are also able to access that and they're able to see if, you know, even if I've used multiple doctors over multiple years, well, what are the drugs that you're on? What possible interactions might there be with those? Are you being prescribed a certain amount of a, a drug with acetaminophen in it or something like that that comes in various other drugs? And then your doctor wouldn't necessarily know about other doctors who are prescribing this. And so they they can, in, in theory, right, they have a full view of your prescription history and can flag anything that is problematic, uh, dangerous about, you know, about your, your current, uh, your current healthcare kind of situation, right? For sure. And, and, and those, those are all great points. Um, and I think it does make the concept of healthcare records and healthcare record exchange, um, I, I agree hundred percent, super, super important stuff and things that in the industry we're addressing, um, really running towards CMS is doing a great job in this. And, CMS is, uh, 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 center for, I, I always mess it up. I, I say it so often. It's, it's, I think it's the center for Medicare services, um, uh, cause Medicaid is state level. So I think that's what the acronym stands for. Um, but it's part of HHS health and human services. So overall, and so they're, they're doing a really great job, um, sort of driving these interoperability standards right now. And the, the benefits, the things that you're talking about, which are real benefits, I, I just don't think they're things that blockchain specifically brings. So when we talk about, um, healthcare record, you know, interchange, so there's, there's some things that we've really adopted. It's been over the past five to 10 years. Um, so, so if we maybe, maybe for a little bit of background, um, mm-hmm. because I think, I think a lot of readers or uh, listeners don't really understand or aren't really familiar with a lot of the, the troubles we face with, with, uh, healthcare interchange. And so we have, there's some great comics out there that talk about this. There's a XKCD comic that talks about this. It's, it, it says like, Hey, you know, there's all these competing standards out there. Let's make another standard to unify them all. And so then the result is that we have, you know, N plus one standards, right? So, and you, you know, you rinse repeat, you get all these different standards. And so, so you have that in healthcare. You have, um, you have really difficult 
interchange messaging. And we're still stuck on the ability to transmit messages between systems for from things that were developed decades ago. And so one of those standards is an old sort of like HL7 standard where we just send these files back and forth. And I think most people think that, well, hey, we're in a modern era of computing. Like I, you know, I have an app I can that, that talks to other apps and it works great. Like, why can't we do this with healthcare records? And those are really fair and valid questions. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that and that we could really dig into. But, but one of the things, so, so we, have, we have this sort of background, this sort of legacy of very, very difficult systems, and even, even systems that, that did speak these standards, they didn't speak it consistently. So if you've done one integration with an EHR, you've done one integration, right? Like you just, you, every single one is different. Uh, and EHR is an electronic health record system. And so there's, there's some sort of big ones out there, kind of Epic and eClinical Works, and there's, there's several they all sort of do things a little bit differently. So several years ago, um, the HL7 standards body, they came up with yet another standard. This one is actually really good. It's called FHIR, F-H-I-R is the acronym. And this one's actually really good. And, and everyone started to notice because it is, it does sort of deliver on that promise that people would expect of like, well, why can't we just talk to each other? Why, why is it so hard? Um, this, this new one that has come out is doing a really good job of that. And CMS is, is pushing it. And another thing that CMS is doing, which is new is they're starting to come out with rules for all of these electronic health record vendors that says, Hey, look, interoperability isn't something that's nice to have. It's a must have. So you must do this thing. So they're, they're issuing rules out to these EHR vendors. And not only are they saying you must do it. But they're saying, well, you must do it using this nice new standard that has been developed called FHIR. And so all of these benefits that you've talked about with sort of sharing health records on the blockchain and things like that, they, the industry has really stepped up and found a great solution for that is, doesn't really involve blockchain. And I think the, the argument that you could make to say, well, but hey, you know, blockchain is 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 still re- relevant because it does the you know, tamper detection stuff and all the security and these these rolling blocks and, and all that. Um, I, I honestly, I think, I mean, we've had technologies to do tamper detection since the dawn of computing. Like, there's there's some real easy ways to do that. That we can do cryptographic hashes. We can have um, we can have signed records that are signed with a cryptographic hash to detect tamper um, change. We could st- stick that in the metadata. And I'm, I'm speaking a lot of nerdy gobbledygook, and I apologize. Right. And and actually, I do want to make the fire thing concrete, which I do in a, a second here, because it was something that I ended up doing a little bit of work on. It was a very interesting standard. But th- just in terms of the you know, the one of the other benefits or possible benefits of the, the blockchain way of going is that you don't have one firm that controls the database and then no one wants to work with that firm because they're a competitor. So the idea of the blockchain would be that just like, you know, just like anybody who wants to do any kind of banking with digital currency is willing to use, you know, Bitcoin because it's not owned by any one institution, the promise of doing this on blockchain would be that um, you know, that I'm not just adding to my competitor's database. Sure. And that's a great point. I think the, the solution that we've seen um, 
both in industry and, uh, and, and from the government is this, uh, and it's, it's, it's met with different degrees of success based on region, but it's this concept of an HIE. I'm not sure if you, have you ever heard of an HIE? Go ahead and explain that. Okay. So it's, it's, it stands for health information exchange. So essentially what it is, is it addresses that exact problem that you're talking about where you'll have a county or a state, usually it's by county, um, they'll set up these health information exchanges. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just did a, a security and compliance review for uh, King County in Washington State doing, um, they were doing what's called a community information exchange. It was kind of the same thing, but it expanded on uh, health information and also incorporated community services like food banks and housing and things like that. Um, so that you had sort of this centralized place to have a history of all the services that had been provided. And so these HIEs, by and large, are using that, that sort of fire standard for interoperability. And since they're run by the state or the county, you don't really have as much of a competitive issue with it. And so now I will say that the downside is, is that so, so this this stuff came out, if I remember right, it all came out sort of as part of the high tech act and, and uh, the Obama presidency. And it was a really, really good idea, but it's really been up to how much funding each individual region received and how much attention they really pay, paid to it. So you, you, you'll see right now, it's pretty fragmented. You'll, so to be fair, it is pretty fragmented. So some regions do a great job of this and a doctor can get into this HIE they can see health the stuff that the whole history they can exchange records it, it works great other ones uh it's out of date you have problems matching patients properly you have it just and, and and they're not very use, useful so so your, your your point is valid i would argue though if we if we really think about the details of what does it mean to own your own health records so so let's let's kind of think through what that would mean like how does how does someone do that do they download a file like where, where do they, where do they keep that file? Right. So no one's going to do that. Cause like, you know, I don't know, most people use their phones anymore. Then, you know, they use laptops for work. So we're, we're the plan was through an app as, as is the modern world. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. But then, but then right now you just got back to centralization, right. You got to do it through an app. Right. So, so now someone owns your health record, <laughs> you know, so you're right well, back to in, where you were. In theory, the, the app is just a view layer on you know, on the uh, the underlying records, right? It's just your way to view the piece of that uh, giant spreadsheet that kind of belongs to you, that is related to you, right? Yeah. Well, well, you still get back to who stores it, though, right? So, because we wouldn't want to store our health records on on a device that could get stolen, right? So, so we have to put it somewhere that's going to be secure and back backed up. So, you know, maybe Google Drive or, or, or you know, whatever the the Microsoft. Right. Assuming that you have encryption too, that um, that protects your information from someone, even if the idea being, even if someone is able to, and I, maybe we'll talk about this within the context of these HIEs too. You want a system so that even even if people are able to hack into the database and download all the data, they don't really see anything because everything is encrypted in a way that makes it so that only the people who are entitled to access it are able to. That is a deep, deep subject that I would love to dig into more because I'm a security nerd. Um, so, so the weakness, typically the weakness with, um, 
with with security is not is not with the encryption and all that. It tends to be at, at what they call the endpoint. So it tends to be on the on the user's device. They'll have some Trojan with a keystroke logger or something like that on there. And so all of your nice secure encrypted everything just kind of goes out the window because you know some guy in Russia just saw you type your password in. You know, and so right. it's it, so that's always the problem with that. And so you know, getting getting back to the blockchain and the ledger. If we're storing that place in a central, and so so if if you think about it, well, okay, the industry is going to rise to meet the demand. Like they're going to say, okay, hey, you know, I've got a service where you can store your your blockchain, and because everyone's going to want to do that, and so everyone puts their ledger up there and, and it's stored, and then you know maybe they have all kinds of apps they integrate with, you know, and they have, and so you can just kind of click a button, like you're saying, you know, like view your thing. Okay, but now, but now, what you did is you just got back to a commercial entity that owns your health records. That's a centralized entity. You it, know, is, and- it is most definitely a, a problem. We'll have to uh, pick back up with that problem, and I do want to go into a little bit of the fire thing because I find that a, a, a fascinating kind of case study in how to solve a or try to solve a very hard problem. But we will be right back here on Keys Talk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Clay Gulick. He is the CTO of TELUS Health Solutions, and we were talking about the issue of healthcare records, and in particular, one of the standards called FHIR. I think that's F-H-I-R, right? Um, and it's a very interesting standard. I worked on it uh, a little bit, not on the standard, but on implementing a piece of it uh, when I worked at Health Chain RX, which was working with prescription records. And uh, people think of a standard and they might think of something that is fairly simple that specifies, oh, well, your electricity comes out at 60 hertz or something like that. Oh, we just have to tune it to that. Or, you know, a railway spec that says that the rail gauge has to be exactly so many millimeters. But this is not like a very very simple, tidy little spec with one or two rules for these records, is it? No, no, and, and it's it's a great point, Matt. Um, so the, the the issue is is that the problem is very complex because healthcare is huge. You know, all the different parts of healthcare. You have everything from radiology and imaging to to you know prescription drugs to to, to hey you just you called your doctor because you felt something weird and how do you document that and then you have you know fee for service billing codes there's a whole other subject we could get into and all that but like so how do you make a standard that encompasses every part of everything you could possibly want to do and I'll give you an example um, you think of like oh someone's name right well name's easy you know maybe maybe you just have first name or last name okay well hold on it's not quite that easy because maybe they have a a suffix or a prefix. Well, okay, we can just add another field for that. That's not a big deal, right? But well, hold on now, because there's a whole whole lot of people in the world have way more than two names or way more than three names, even if you add a middle name in. And there's it's very common in Hispanic regions to have four or five, right? And and they can get very complicated kind of apostrophes and all kinds of different stuff in it. But then hold on, wait, it's still not that easy, right? Because we could have done we could say, okay, whatever, we'll give 10, but no, we can't do that because well, your name's not the same all the time. Right. So my, my name's Clay, but it's also Clayton. So which one do you go by? Okay. Well, we could probably add an alias or something in there, try to figure that out. What's your preferred name? Okay. Well, there's another field. Okay. But then I got married, you know, or maybe, you, you know, whatever. I got mad at my dad and I want to change my last name. People do that, you know? Um, okay. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe 
you know, there's been several different marriages. Okay, well, so we're getting more and more complicated here, right? So names, names are a really big, big and we deal. haven't even left the name field. We haven't even left the name field, right? So if you look at the fire spec, it it, it takes all this into account, right? It's got it's you know it's this list of all of the history of all your different names of all the different combination of names of all the suffixes of all the different stuff that you may have had throughout your whole life, and then it tries to figure out which one's current. But who knows what's current? Because I'm talking to ten different medical systems, and I've told them three different things, right? So who even knows what what's the current? And don't even get me started on phone numbers. Right. Like how many different kinds of phone numbers and well, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, whether they can accept text messages. And so so all we're talking about so far, we've just gone through a lot of just just mind bending stuff on two fields. Now, imagine the thousands and thousands of fields that you have to support to do healthcare operations. Right. So it's very, very complicated. And so so, Matt, you're absolutely right. The fire standard is incredibly complicated. And what one of the just to jump in with one of the complications that we dealt with. Uh, was that one of the things that it, it does too is it is it tries to in a sense codify certain processes and I was working on this in Canada and the way the process of renewals works is that officially speaking you need to kind of get approval for renewal before you can pick it up but in practice pharmacists often will just they know their customer they know they're getting this even if they don't have the official renewal they'll give it out but then you have a system where you've encoded this kind of process of how things are supposed to work in terms of first there's the approval and then after the approval comes the disbursement to the patient. But then what do you do in terms of, a say, a data integrity check that may be related to that space or that uh, spec when you've got something that's happened on the ground that seems to contradict? So the spec itself almost becomes... Um, normative in a way, right? In that you are, in a sense, saying that healthcare procedures should look like this or should be kind of pigeonholed into this. Well, you, you, you can get me going on a, on a pretty good rant about that particular subject it. because like, well, I mean, that's, that's a much, much broader issue really than the spec because, um, because really what, what we're trying to do in healthcare in general is we're trying to quantify things that are, are just not quantifiable or at least not well. And so if we think about, for example, when, when you go to the doctor and you get, a, they diagnose you with something, right? Well, it used to be, um, I don't know, I think it was like two years ago, I forget when ICD-10 came out, but they, they, they had this list of codes and it was pretty big. There were, there were a bunch of them in there. Um, but they would come up with, with, with a code for you. And then, and that would, that would sort of like encode your diagnosis. And then based on that code, you had, there's probably these other codes for treatment codes. And then based on that, you would bill. So you want to talk about like a railway of treatment, right? Like, you know, like doctors had very, and still have very little flexibility under this sort of fee for service model where you have this diagnostic code. Well, then it got even worse. And we came out with this new code set because that didn't work. Cause you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quantifying everything. So now we have this absurd code set called ICD-10, which literally has a code for shark bites, right? Like, I mean, it's got it's got a code for like everything you could imagine. It's ridiculous, right? And so nobody uses this stuff. How could you? Like, you're going to look through all this stuff or search through it. You can't do it, you know. And then and then you have all this all these different um, treatment codes that exist, you, you know. And in, in my realm, for example, and I'll just throw out weird numbers: nine nine four five four and 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 patient monitoring. So CMS comes up with these codes. We want to do remote patient monitoring 
Um, and that's one of the things we can use to bill for this. So in remote patient monitoring is where you send a blood pressure cuff home with a patient or something like that. And so, so we, you know, we, we do that and we have clinical staff that kind of monitors those vital signs. Well, so you have all these different codes that you use to try to bill for that service, but, but all these different codes, because, you know, people aren't ethical all the time, they'll, they'll do, they'll do whatever. And they'll bill, they'll bill uh, Medicare for stuff they shouldn't be billing. So now there's all these requirements for every one of these codes. You have to document certain things. You have to do it in certain ways. You have to do it in 15 minute increments. You have to order the equipment in a certain way and all that. So, so then really what we get is we get CMS and Medicare because of these codes, because they're, they're trying their hearts in the right place. They're trying to prevent fraud and, and, and have great outcomes. Um, you get this fee for service model where all of your healthcare is driven by billing codes rather than by necessarily what's best for the patient. And that's a super frustrating state that the industry is in. I can say, however, that as an industry, we are shifting to something better. And CMS is really driving this too, because they've seen the problem with fee for service. They, they understand that. And they're switching over to uh, what's known as a value-based care model which is a, 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 a larger focus on, hey, how healthy are you and what are your outcomes rather than you did this one thing, like you were saying, you know, like you did this one thing and now you're going to bill for it. So, but you successfully got me on my rant. <laughs> so, so, so it's very interesting. I do want to talk more about that idea, the value-based care, but talking about this reminds me, do you know the a book Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott? Mm-mm, I haven't read that. So his one of his main points is that um, the state likes things that are legible in the, the broadest sense. So it likes human activity that it can quantify and then, of course, tax, right, and regulate and control and understand. And so the state likes it if the if the what's happening on the ground is in some ways idealized or made more platonic than it actually is. So if you have plots of land in an, um, you know, in an early agrarian society where people have complex rules that are often social in nature about who gets to use the land, how and under what situations with kind of fuzzy borders and whatnot, the state would prefer to come in and make a nice rectangular tract that was owned by a single person. And it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is that same kind of problem applied to healthcare, that in order to sort of track and understand and bill and regulate and manage the healthcare field, what you're doing is taking human health, which is messy, complicated, organic in all ways, and then trying to figure out how you can reg regiment and make legible ever to, you know, to these organizations, everything that is happening within that field. Does that make sense? It, it does. And you're absolutely right. And, and, and the problem is, 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 you know, the, all, all of these, these great ideas run into the real world and they fail and we end up losing resolution instead of gaining it. Um, because, Oh, you know, a counselor's talking to someone, some new rule comes out and they, they throw out, well, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to put, uh, I'm just going to give you a code of adjustment disorder because I have to have a code to put in here. So I'm just going to put that in. Don't worry. It's not what I think is going on, whatever. But like, you know, I just have to have something in order to be able to build. Right. And so, and that happens all the time. And so now you're trying to do like meaningful pop health stuff, population health, where, where we try to try to look at trends and figure out how we can help people. And you've got, you know, this really skewed number on adjustment disorder. 
right? Because like all these clinicians are just throwing this in because they have to have a code. And so how do you do population health? And so like, it's really, really attractive to try to quantify this stuff. And, and we should, because we do want to do statistics and population health. We do want to try to figure that out. But when, when we, when, when we drive to, I, I think like, like you're saying, when, whenever we try to, to quantify things that are inherently unquantifiable, you're going to run into this problem. And I, I think of, um, I think I, I, I sort of like compare and contrast. There's this notion of the halcyon days of like the doctor with his medical bag that used to go to your house and whatever was wrong with you, he'd just fix you whatever. And then, you know, he'd, he'd bill you later on or like take a chicken or something. And, you know, it was like, you know, fine, you know, and, but then, but that doctor didn't have an MRI machine. Right. So like, so we've had to adjust, we've had to do stuff. We've had to switch to, to things because we have enormously expensive and very effective treatments and technologies. And we have to find some way to bill and reimburse for this stuff. Um, so I don't, I mean, if, if I knew what the solution was, I'd make a lot more money than I do now, <laughs> but I, you know, it's easy to poke holes. Um, but I do think, I do believe that one of the solutions is, is the value-based care approach. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, so, so what we're doing, or I say we, what CMS is doing is they're, um, they're kind of, they're taking a look and you're never going to, you're never going to move away from, from fee for service for, for some realm. And that's, that's the kind of model where it's like, you go to a restaurant, you order something off the menu and you pay for it. Right. Like that's the fee for service model. Transactional kind of. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but the problem with that is, is look, I'm not saying that your doctor's not ethical. They are ethical, almost all of them, but, but you, you have different motivations when you're doing transactional fee for service models. It's just like your waiter, right? Your waiter's going to offer you dessert, you know, because like you're trying to get a bigger check there. Right. And so I'm not saying a doctor's going to do that, but like, you're just, your motivations are, are sort of, are, are sort of skewed. Turns out doctors Whereas, are human beings too, and they respond to incentives. Sure. Sure. So with the value-based care thing, I'll give you an example. There's, there's one, uh, there's one called BIPSI. I forget what the acronym stands for. So don't ask me. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife would probably know she's behind me. Um, but it's this, it's this thing where, uh, where essentially if you have like a hip replacement, right? So, so you have to get your hip replaced. They'll, they'll go to a hospital that's going to do it. And they'll say, we're going to give you, I'm just making up a number here. We're going to give you $30,000, right? So $30,000 for hip replacement. Now that's, that's, that's a lot more than what you would have charged in fee for service for the hip replacement. But the thing is, is you're on the hook for all the treatment for that hip replacement and everything that happens afterwards. So if you get discharged to um, what they call like a skilled nursing facility, and this is a place you would go to maybe do rehab or something like that if you had your hip replaced. Um, so the, the facility that took that bundled payment, that one payment, well, I have to pay for all that. They don't, they don't bill CMS anymore for that. They, the, the, the hospital has to pay for that. And so then if you are at that facility and let's say you get an infection, let's say your, your temperature goes up and, and your, your hip replacement had got infected and you have to be readmitted back to the hospital. That's super costly, right? It's like 10 grand to walk through the ER door, you know? So, but the hospital has to pay for all that. They can't bill for any of it, right? So they're on the hook for everything. So the incentive, like you said, the incentive there is to make sure that the patient is well, because they make more money, the better the outcome for the patient because they get to keep the, the vast majority of that $30,000 payment or whatever it was for that, for that bundled payment. So if they can keep a close eye on you, they can make sure, hey, let's monitor your temperature. Let's make sure that the skilled nursing facility isn't maximizing the length of stay, which is what you see a lot of times. It's like, 
you know, the, you'll get admitted to something like, oh, no, 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 you should probably stay in here for a couple more weeks, you know, mm-hmm. because they're billing for it. Right. So so they're, the incentive is completely different. Now, the incentive is to minimize that length of stay. Now, the, the incentive is to make sure that that if you have an infection, we treat it aggressively and early and we intervene before you get readmitted. And so there's a lot of different metrics in this sort of value-based care approach and readmission reduction is one of them. And there's several others that CMS is doing that are just incredible. And it's really, it's really driving quality healthcare. It's really, it's really changing the whole thing. The shift from fee-for-service to, to value-based care and, and, and bundled payments. I think it's a great thing. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it because it seems to be working really well. This reminds me a bit of a, a kind of, I guess, scheme for uh, for managing healthcare that I've heard of, and I'll have to get you to comment on that uh, after we get back from the break here. But this was a, a scheme in which uh, essentially a healthcare provider kind of takes full care of health for a group of people, and then for in exchange for a flat fee, they are completely responsible for all of the healthcare. Mm, the MCO model or the ACO, the MCO. Yeah. yeah, so let, maybe you could, uh, when we get back here, talk a little bit about that particular uh, way of doing things. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Clay Gulick. He is the CTO of Telos Health Solutions, and we are talking about all things related to tech and health. And just before the break, I was asking about a way of doing healthcare that uh, is, in a sense, the 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 group that you contract is responsible for a fixed payment from you for basically taking care of all of your health. Is that a way to describe it? It is, um, and, and we see this, it's existed for a while uh, in some states in Medicaid. So what you'll, what you'll see, and, and really every state's different because Medicaid is administered at the state level and not the federal level. Medicare is administered at the federal level. It's like one, one blanket thing, you know. Um, states kind of each do it differently. But one of the things that we see in several states is we see, uh, because the state, mostly doesn't like being in the business of healthcare, right? That's not what they're experts at. They just, but on the other hand, with Medicaid, you have people who need healthcare that are dependent on the state for that care. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll follow sort of an outsourced model on that, where they have these organizations that are called uh, managed care organizations or MCOs. And you can think of it kind of like insurance, but insurance is, 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 much more fee for service, kind of like we were talking about last time. With with these um, with these MCOs, they get a set amount of money every month for every person that they have on their on their sort of patient roster that they have to deal with, and it's not the same for everyone. Um, depending on what, what's acuity in healthcare, but the severity of your illness, right? Like if you're if you know if you have late stage emphysema or something, obviously you're, you're have a lot greater problems than like someone that's 20 years old, healthy. Right. So, but they'll, they'll, they'll pay something per month per person. And depending on, on the severity, it may be more or less. And then there's a whole process where you have, that's actually, I used to be the CTO of a, of a company called healthy LT, which was 
specifically the business we worked in was assessing these folks and, you know, figuring out how much, you know, these MCOs should be, should be paying for each one. But, uh, but yeah, it's in, in that, that model, it's, it's, there's, there's parts of it that are effective and parts of it that are not. Um, you keep, you keep dealing with, with the issue of, of people just acting right and doing right. And so in the, the sort of um, industry term for it is they call it utilization review. And so, right. That's a very nice way of saying, Hey, like you're billing, we're paying you all this money. Like, are you using it in the right way? Like, are you doing what you should be doing with it? And because, because some people will try to maximize services and all that kind of stuff to get paid as much as they can for things when maybe they really shouldn't be. And so that's really the, the issue that the state is constantly fighting with. And then from the MCO perspective, you know, they don't want to open up the kimono, right? Like they want to, they want to, you know, they want to do as well as they can. And, and, and there's, there's rules and stuff like in Texas Medicaid, there's rules like they, they're not allowed to make more than a certain percentage profit. Right. So if they, if they're doing really, really well on these payments, they got to give the money back to the state. Right. Cause they can't, they, you know, they're, they're only allowed to keep so much. So it's really complicated. Um, it, like I say, it, it, Believe it or not, Texas, even, even with all the problems that, that we have with Medicaid in Texas, it's really considered the gold standard in the country for managed care organizations. And there's a lot of states out there that try to follow the, the Texas model for Medicaid. So it, um, I, I would say overall, it's, it's, it's pretty effective, but it's a very difficult problem. I am uh, talking with Clay Gulick here, who is a CTO of a healthcare company. And it occurs to me that maybe I should have asked you, what is a CTO? And in particular, what are some challenges that you find of being a CTO in the healthcare field specifically? Sure. Um, CTO is a fancy name for the, for the biggest nerd, right? So it's, you know, it's chief, chief technology officer. So, so we, I, I write the, the technology that, um, that we see in, in healthcare systems and different, different healthcare systems, um, which, which is a very specialized field of technology. And I would say to, to answer, answer your second question, um, one of the, you know, every, everyone wonders, every, everyone asks me this question all the time. They say, why, why does healthcare technology suck so bad? Like, it's just miserable to use. Like, I don't, if you've ever been in your doctor's office or you've ever been in the hospital and you're looking at the screens they're clicking on, you're going like, oh my God, right? Like everything I have on my phone is a hundred times better than this. Like, why are they, like, what is happening here? And, you know, there's a lot of people asking that question and um, it, it, you know, I've, everyone's got opinions. I've got a lot of, a lot of them. Um, but I can tell you that one of the challenges that I face is I have a really, really hard time hiring and, and I'm, I'm not going to complain about hiring developers, right? Everyone has a hard time hiring developers, but specifically what are you talking about we're great people. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a shortage of developers. Everyone's complaining about it, but, but in healthcare, it's even harder. It's, it's really hard because you, you have, you have this law, it's called HIPAA and HIPAA is a really good law. Like I agree with HIPAA and I think it's well-written, but some companies will, will err on the side of caution with HIPAA and they, they make the working environment very, very restrictive. And it's very difficult to hire a talented developer to work in an environment that is so restrictive to work on things that even while, while it gives them great purpose because they're helping people and, and, and saving lives, 
the day-to-day of what you have to do as a developer in that environment when you can go and you can work for some cool startup that has like a foosball in the back and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you get your own laptop with stickers on it and do all that. Um, You know, it's just, it's a way better environment and they're going to pay more generally too. And so, so you run into that and then I'll, I'll tell you, this is a funny unintended consequence. One of the things that I run into is uh, drug testing, like developer smoke pot. They, they do like it's, are there requirements that you don't, that you test? There's yeah, Hmm. because you have these federal contact contractor flow down requirements from CMS. So because you have these, these federal laws that are zero tolerance policies and they flow down to all the contractors. So if you take payment from CMS, if you bill Medicare, then you have to comply with this stuff. So you have to do mandatory drug testing and you have to do, you, you know, before you hire anybody. And so that's actually, it's a silly problem, but it's a real one. It's like, there's a lot of developers that say, look, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. Like, even if they don't smoke pots in basic, right? And, oh, and for so, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's actually really hard. So I have to do all kinds of crazy stuff. I have to set, like when, when I'm, when I'm dealing with healthcare technology, like all kinds of tricks that I do, which is having, um, I set up separate legal entities. I have, you know, to, to try to separate them out from the entity that actually bills and interacts with CMS versus the entity that develops like a technical platform, you know, and stuff like that. But then even then you can still have what's called a BAA agreement, which is a, it's, it's a, it's this part of HIPAA where you, it's a medical contracting kind of thing. And so even then you can still get caught up in it. Um, And so that's, it's a real challenge and it's, it's hard to hire um, even for something as silly as that. And then when you couple it with the work environment's not great. So what, what, who do you end up with, right? You end up with people that can't get another job basically in a lot of cases. And I'm not saying everybody, right? There's, there's great developers that work in healthcare and there's some real heroes out there and I've worked with a lot of them, but, but it is a struggle. It is a problem in the industry that I've seen over, over years and years of doing this. And, and so Another thing that we run into with healthcare technology is you don't have the same focus on presentation that you have in consumer applications. And I think this is a huge mistake. It's one of the things I'm the most pa- passionate about. And, and, and I know I get it in the industry when you do business apps, they're never pretty or whatever, and you do B2B stuff and it's, it's, it never looks as great because whatever, you've got a captive audience, right? Like you've got your employees, they got to work there, they got to use the thing. But when we're dealing with healthcare and we're dealing with people who are staring at a screen all day long, things like eye strain matter. Mistakes can get made easily. User interfaces that present things in clear, readable ways that minimize mistakes are crucial. They, they are actually, while you were talking about that, I was just thinking about how many years ago was that, that the someone in Hawaii accidentally pressed the button to send out a missile alert that there was an incoming, right? And that was a that was clearly a user interface thing. So I imagine at the healthcare level, there are a lot of mistakes that are made like that, that were simply because the healthcare wasn't, the uh, interface wasn't presented in a, a straightforward way that avoided that kind of a mistake. Absolutely. And it just tends to be in healthcare systems, it tends to be the lowest priority. And I think it should be the highest priority. Uh, we, we, we have rules. We know how to do this stuff, right? As an industry, as a technical industry, we know how to do it. When, when you're using your phone and you're using some of these apps, if you don't like the way it looks, you're going to get rid of it, right? So this is a science. UX is a science. We, we know there's, there's a certain number of pieces of information we present on the screen at once. There's, there's calls to action that are very clear, all that kind of stuff. All that gets thrown out in healthcare systems. 
right? And so it's getting better. It's, you know, as time goes by, it's getting better. And, but one of the problems is it's not with, with healthcare, it's not like you can just do on your phone where it's like, oh, this app sucks. I'm going to get rid of it and get something better. You know, with healthcare, you've got a hospital that's got, you know, 10, 15 years of records and everyone's trained on this one system. Switching can cost tens of millions of dollars. It's a huge deal or, or more, you know, just, just in retraining. So it's, you know, these kind of crappy, crappy sort of legacy systems, you're just kind of stuck with the vendor. You don't, can't really do anything. If the vendor is not going to improve it, you're just kind of stuck. This was actually one of the problems that we were dealing with in addition to implementing the spec was then, you know, every single doctor's office, that system has to interface with this and it's got its own interface, right, for doing that. And then one of the the questions was, okay, well, how can we implement this in a way that doctors are actually going to use it, right? How can it be slipped into their process and their screen in a way that is is going to work with the assumption being that, you know, that the amount of retraining or the amount of additional steps or whatever had to be almost zero, right? One of the, I think this is probably right, one of the broader challenges in, in healthcare is that everybody has the way that they do things and it's very hard to get them to change. You need a really strong um, reason uh, that, that convinces them to do things differently. Well, CMS is trying to do that and they're doing a good job. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been very impressed with what I've seen coming out of CMS. I, I love the interop rules. I love, so they just made a rule where um, if you want to get your health records, the, the company has to give them to you. Not only do they have to give them to you, but they have to give them to you in the way that you want them. And, and it's great. It's great stuff. So CMS, I think, is really, is really seeing these problems and addressing them. Um, I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a lot of positive change in the industry. Well, that would certainly be interesting to see. And it's been interesting talking with you and popping back in on a topic that I was heavily involved with for a short period of time and seeing what's uh, what has and hasn't happened in that. Clay, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me. Well, thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it.